Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Please take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20. We continue in our study of this book about the life and the reign of King David. And today we come to chapter 20, uh, the story of Sheba's rebellion. Just to recap where we've been in the past few weeks, Absalom, David's son, uh, he stages a coup and rebels against his father's throne. He declares himself to be king and in doing so, he gets most of the people on his side. And so David then has to flee Jerusalem. But David, remember, he is the Lord's anointed. David's side is ultimately victorious in battle. And uh, Absalom is killed in that battle by David's general, Joab. Now in the aftermath of the rebellion, David seeks to reclaim the throne that rightly belongs to him. So chapter 19 chronicles his return to Jerusalem. He's going back to Jerusalem to reestablish his kingship. And you'll remember from last week that section of verses in chapter 19 that I said pointed forward to the events of chapter 20. All the tribes of Israel want to bring David back to the throne, except, interestingly enough, his own tribe of Judah, they remain silent. And that might have had something to do with the fact that, well, they were the first ones to follow Absalom during the revolt. Uh, they were the first ones to leave King David for the usurper. And so David reaches out to them, his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, and he extends to them an olive branch. Let me read again from chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. A say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And so David implores the tribe of Judah to take the lead in bringing him back to Jerusalem. He even makes Amasa, who was previously the general of Absalom's rebel army, he makes Amasa the general of his army, demoting Joab in the process, thus signaling to everybody that regardless of what they've done during the rebellion, they can be forgiven. By offering one of the leaders of the rebellion amnesty and pardon, he's essentially offering everybody amnesty and pardon. And his plan works brilliantly. Look at verse 14. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return, both you and all your servants. It's brilliant. The tribe of Judah... Once Absalom's strongest backers, the tribe of Judah is now on his side. And they demonstrate their loyalty to David by meeting him at the Jordan River to help him cross over. Right? They take the lead in bringing him back to Jerusalem. The narrative in 19 then shifts to three one-on-one -on -one conversations that David has during this time with Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. We talked about those in detail last time. But then at the end of the chapter, we come back to this issue of crossing the river that honestly we were ready to forget. Look at what happens in verses 41 to 43. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? We, have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. 
Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So yeah, reaching out to the tribe of Judah, it seemed like a great move. But you know how it is. Sometimes uh, something can seem like a great move, and then there's hidden kind of unanticipated issues. What David didn't anticipate was that the other tribes of Israel, besides Judah, referred to here as the men of Israel, that they would feel slighted and they would feel overlooked by his move. Why did they get to bring you over the Jordan? What about us? And you see how the initial question is addressed to David? Verse 41 says they said that to the king. But David doesn't even get to respond. At least his response is not recorded for us. Because the people of Judah interject. Well, David's from our tribe. He's one of ours, so too bad. And then the men of Israel fire back. Well, first of all, we're ten tribes and you're only one, so we have ten shares in David and you only get one. And second of all, we were the first ones to talk about bringing him back. You guys are just copying us. Now, don't miss the irony here. All these tribes, just a short time earlier, supported Absalom in driving David out of Jerusalem, and now they're fighting and arguing to have the right to bring him back in. And all this feels so petty. Like little kids arguing over toys. That's my toy. Well, yeah, but I thought about playing with it first, and the only reason you want to play with it is because I wanted to play with it. And so we might read this incident at the end of chapter 19 and think, well, not that big of a deal. Like one group's mad at the other group because they didn't get invited to the party. Whatever. They'll get over it. But that's where we need to remember the history. Back in 1859, uh, there was a confrontation between the United States and the United Kingdom on San Juan Island uh, off the coast of what is now Washington State. It's an island that was jointly occupied by American and British forces and On June 15th of that year, uh, an American farmer shot a stray pig that was eating his potatoes. A pig that belonged to a British man. That led to a dispute, and then the British authorities tried to arrest the American man, which eventually led to this big military standoff between the two nations. Warships were called in, thousands of soldiers were called in. So was this whole incident, known in the history books as the Pig War of 1859, uh, was this really about a pig eating someone's potatoes? No, right? We need to remember the history. Uh, There had been hundreds of years of tension, animosity between the Americans and the British, The farmer shooting Peppa Pig, that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. So going back to Judah and Israel, right? Let's remember the history. Early on in the book of 2 Samuel, King Saul dies. It's only the tribe of Judah that goes with King David. They're the only ones that anoint David as king. The other tribes of Israel, they all go with Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now, we often think about that as just being David versus Ishbosheth because they were the two rival kings, but don't forget the people. You've got the tribe of Judah on one side and all the other tribes of Israel on the other. They're the ones actually fighting in this long war. They're the ones who are losing fathers and sons and brothers. Now, eventually, Ishbosheth dies, and David unites all the tribes under his rule. But 
that long history of war between those two groups doesn't just magically disappear. There's still grave sites. There's still casualties. And surely, bitterness and hostilities, even if they were hidden under the surface. And sometimes, all it takes for some long-seated, seemingly smoothed-over tensions to resurface is a stray pig eating someone's potatoes or not being invited to a ceremonial crossing of the Jordan. And so what appears as no big deal can quickly escalate. It was true with the Pig War of 1859, and it's true here in 2 Samuel as well. Look at how chapter 19 ends. The words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And so you take some pre-existing previous hostilities and bitterness. You mix in some jealousy and some pride and tribalism. And you throw in some fierce words being exchanged. And all that is going to become the straw that breaks the camel's back. That brings us to our chapter for this morning, 2 Samuel 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bikri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. To take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the sto great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails into to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmaacah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmaacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel, 
And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priests. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. You remember the words of the prophet Nathan when he confronted David on his sin? He, speaking for God, he tells David that the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword shall never depart from your house. Maybe you think, well, Absalom's rebellion has been put down. The prodigal son is now dead. David is on his way back to Jerusalem to reclaim his throne. Everything can go back to normal now. That whole thing was a really painful episode. But that's now all in the rearview mirror. But just when you think that the sword is finally going to depart from David... Well, the sword continues to devour. And now, here we have another rebellion. And it's a rebellion that, when you consider the way in which the narrator presents the characters and the events, it tells us a lot about the current state of David's kingdom. And the main point is this. I'll give it to you up front. The kingdom has been restored. The kingdom is intact. The king is back, but this is not the kingdom that it once was. This is not the glorious kingdom of David's early reign. No, this is a divided, dysfunctional, declining kingdom. So we have three points today. For each point, we'll see how one of the characters in this narrative illustrates for us the perilous state of the kingdom. And so first we'll look at Sheba and the divided kingdom. Then we'll look at Joab and the dysfunctional kingdom. And finally we'll look at David and the declining kingdom. So first point number one, let's consider Sheba and the divided kingdom. So who is Sheba? Well, the fact is we don't really know too much about him. We're told that he is a Benjaminite. And so remember that King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So maybe he was angry that David had taken the throne from his tribe. Maybe he used to work for King Saul. Maybe he was even a close relative of King Saul. We don't know. There's one more important piece of background information on him in verse 1. Don't miss this. He's referred to there as a worthless man. The Hebrew there literally says that he was a man of Belial, the devil. That's one of the strongest descriptions in the Old Testament of wicked, evil people. If you remember back to our study in 1 Samuel, uh, Eli's sons, the wicked priests Hophni and Phinehas, they are called sons of Belial. Nabal, you remember him, he is called a son of Belial. It was a term reserved for the most wicked of people. Like that is how Sheba is introduced to us here. And so even before he does anything, like we know that he is going to be a problem. It's one of the great 
philosophers of our day would put it, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Well, it's this Sheba. This Sheba who, seeing the hostility, seeing the tension between the tribe of Judah and all the other tribes, he takes advantage. He capitalizes on this discontentment and he calls for a rebellion. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Basically, David might be the king of Judah, but for the rest of us tribes, he's not our king. And so he calls the other tribes to secede from the kingdom, to break their covenant with King David. And notice the term that he uses to describe David, the son of Jesse. That's a term that we haven't seen in a long time. We haven't seen it at all in 2 Samuel. But you'll remember back in 1 Samuel, that was Saul's favorite term to refer to David without saying his name in contempt. Where is the son of Jesse? Well, Sheba brings back that term of contempt. And as a result of this call to rebel and secede, look at verse 2. All the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now that's fascinating. Because the reason for the discontentment of the tribes of Israel seemed to be that they didn't get to honor David in his return to the kingship. That's why it seems like they were mad But now they choose to totally dishonor him by saying that he's no longer their king. The same people who just said, look at chapter 19, verse 43. They just said, we have 10 shares in the king. Well, now they're going with Sheba's declaration in the very next verse, chapter 20, verse 1. We have no portion in David. Like, how in the world does 10 shares in the king so quickly become, we have no portion in David? Well, they show that their anger really wasn't about David's honor at all. Now, it was much more about their own pride and jealousy. But whatever the motive of the people at large, the end result is that the kingdom is now divided. The tribe of Judah on one side, all the other tribes on the other side. And so in that sense, we've moved backwards in history. We're now all the way back to the early days when David's only following was the tribe of Judah. And so Sheba has succeeded, at least for now, in dividing God's kingdom. David's once glorious united kingdom is falling apart at the seams. Point number one, Sheba and the divided kingdom. And we're going to see in the rest of this chapter that well, Sheba's rebellion was rather short-lived and Sheba himself was rather short-lived. But the spirit of Sheba You know, that spirit of divisiveness that takes advantage of tensions, discontentment, to then sow discord amongst God's people. Well, it's certainly not unique to him. Sometimes, sadly enough, we see the spirit of Sheba alive and well in churches. Maybe someone's offended by someone else. But instead of helping to resolve the offense, instead of being peacemakers who promote reconciliation, well, people start taking sides, and the animosity on both sides just keeps growing stronger and stronger. Or maybe there's a group of people that's discontent about something, and let's just assume that it's something that is not essential, the style of music or the way that a certain ministry is run or whatever it might be. And that animosity, that discontentment, whatever it is, it it grows stronger through gossip and slander and through otherwise well-intentioned people not calling those things out, right? Not nipping them in the bud. 
And then into that perfect storm comes a Sheba, a particularly divisive person, a leader of discontentment, a stirrer of discord. Before you know it, you've got an all-out war on your hands, whether it's in the nation of Israel or it's in your local church. The spirit of Sheba is so dangerous. So it's no surprise that the New Testament is so full of warnings to the church about such people. Consider Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. And Titus 3. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Brothers and sisters, as a church, as God's people, we need to be on guard against the spirit of Sheba in our midst because it can be so dangerous. And it's a danger that David seems to immediately recognize in his context. Look at what he says in verse 6. Sheba, the son of Bikri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Like Absalom in his pride, like he clearly did a lot of harm. He brought like a massive civil war about. But Sheba in his divisiveness, like Sheba's going to be even worse. Now it's going to turn out that David is completely wrong in that assessment, uh, Sheba's rebellion is going to amount to nothing. All the men of Israel that you see in verse 2 that initially seemed to follow Sheba, when it came down to actually fighting, uh, it's really just the Bichrites. It's really just Sheba's immediate relatives who are with him. And so this whole movement actually peters out pretty quickly. But, but, In a more ultimate sense, David's right about the dangers of Sheba. Because the spirit of Sheba, that spirit of divisiveness, that spirit of Sheba is going to outlive him. And in two generations, when David's grandson Rehoboam is king, it is going to strike with a vengeance. It was a similar spirit of division, is going to lead the tribes to permanently split into two separate kingdoms. And look at what the people say when they divide the nation. 1 Kings 12, verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's Sheba's slogan, almost word for word. So even though Sheba fails miserably in his divisiveness, well, he has planted the seeds of division that are going to be harvested soon enough by those who follow in his spirit. And God's people ought always to be aware of the dangers of a Sheba. Point number one, Sheba and the divided kingdom. Which brings us to point number two, Joab and the dysfunctional kingdom. So David sees that he's got a a big problem here on his hands in Sheba. And if there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters, no, who are you going to call? You're not going to call Joab, because remember, Joab's been demoted. He's going to call his newly appointed general, Amasa. David calls Amasa and gives him three days to put the army together. Get all the men who are eligible for war in Judah and assemble them together. Not a lot of time, but remember, David has just come off a war in which Absalom's crucial mistake was that he took too long. And so he's in a bit of a rush. You can see the sense of urgency in verse 6. Pursue him lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. But three days is not a long time. 
And so Amasa doesn't show up on time. And so now David turns to, again, it's not Joab. He's clearly still upset about the whole killing his son thing. He turns to Joab's brother, Abishai. And so Abishai takes the standing army. Uh, They're called here, Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And the fact that they're called Joab's men here, does that not bring more attention to the fact that they are no longer being led by Joab? It's Abishai who is leading these men. And so Abishai, with Joab under him, begins to pursue Sheba. And so they get to Gibeon. There Amasa comes to meet them, presumably with the men of Judah that he was called to gather and recruit. And Joab, like, I think we've suspected all along that he wasn't going to take this whole demotion thing very well. Well, he goes to Amasa and basically stabs him in the stomach and kills him. Now, the text gives us two interesting details about the stabbing, and I think both pieces of information are significant. One, Joab's sword falls out of its sheath, and the implication is that he picks it up. Two, Joab takes Amasa by the beard to kiss him. Apparently, that was a a common, friendly greeting back then. And the narrator throws in this little detail that he took his beard with his right hand. Now, why does the author specifically include the fact that he did it with his right hand? Like, I don't care what hand someone uses to greet someone with. Well, I think we put those two seemingly irrelevant pieces of information together and we see that the author is drawing our attention to just how sneaky and underhanded and deceptive this murder was. Because it'd be one thing if Joab just came charging at Amasa with his sword in his right hand, presumably his fighting hand, Because if he's charging at Amasa with his sword in his right hand, presumably Amasa has time to defend himself, to react. But here, Joab drops his sword on the way to greet Amasa, and so Amasa thinks nothing of it as Joab picks up his sword with his left hand, then goes to greet Amasa, grabbing him in his beard, and then boom, with his left hand, stabs him right in the stomach. The point of these details is that Amasa was caught completely off guard. Amasa had nothing to suspect. Amasa was completely defenseless. This is a deceptive, devious, cowardly, cold-blooded murder. You would think that the assassination of the general of the army would be pretty jarring for the soldiers under his command. And so Joab basically assigns a guy to stand next to the corpse and say, oh, nothing to see here. Keep moving. Keep moving that way. Everybody go that way. Whoever follows Joab, whoever's for David, don't worry about a mesa here. Just, just keep going. Go after Sheba. And Joab has shown that he is back in charge. Oh, we're not told what happened with Abishai. But I bet you he's thinking, you know what, this is just not worth it. Joab, you can totally have the reins. Well, all this is happening. And in the meantime, Sheba is escaping. Sheba is running up north. Verse 14 tells us that he passes through all the tribes of Israel. He is garnering support, or at least he's trying to, but nobody's going with him. And so he ends up going into the city, Abel of Bethmaica, with just his close relatives, the Bichrites. Again, not a huge rebellion by any means. He realizes he's outnumbered. He tries to find safety in this walled city. And so Joab and his men get to the city, and they start battering the walls, trying to bring the entire city down. That's when a woman from the city comes to speak to him. Whoa, 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 Joab. What are you trying to, you're trying to destroy the city? This city is a mother in Israel. And New York is known for its culture, and Los Angeles is known for celebrities. Washington, D.C. is known for politics. Apparently, Abel was known for wisdom. Like back in the day, people want wisdom, you go to Abel. 
And so she asks Joab, why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Like, why are you trying to destroy this city that is famous in Israel for its wisdom? Joab's answer, I think, is one of the most unintentionally funny lines in the Old Testament. Far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up and destroy. That is not true. Like, really, Joab? Then Joab tells the woman, listen, we're just looking for Sheba. Give him up and, and we're done here. Woman goes back into the city. They cut Sheba's head off. They throw it over the wall. Perhaps deciding that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole city should perish. And so Joab's content. The war is over. David's kingdom is intact. The city of Abel is spared by this really wise woman's really wise actions. And everybody goes home. And they all live happily ever after the end. But not quite. Because underlying this whole episode... This putting down of Sheba's rebellion. Underlying this whole episode is this complete dysfunction in David's kingdom, most clearly seen in the actions of Joab. Because when Joab murders Amasa in cold blood, this is now the third person that Joab has killed in this book. Remember back in chapter 3, Joab murders Abner. Another rival military general, also deceptively, and also by stabbing him in the stomach. And you might remember how angry David was about it. He even pronounces a curse on Joab. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, or who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David's mad. And then in chapter 18, we covered this a few weeks ago, Joab kills Absalom. Now this one's a little different because it wasn't done in deception. Uh, it was done in the midst of war. But he did go against King David's explicit command to not harm Absalom. And now here in chapter 20, Joab kills David's newly appointed military general Amasa. And so yes, he is the most loyal soldier that David has. Yes, he is one of the most successful military generals in biblical history. But at the same time, he is completely out of control, disobedient to the king. And this murder in chapter 20... I think this is his worst offense yet. Because Abner, well, Abner had killed Joab's brother. And Absalom, well, Absalom was an enemy of the state. And so we can kind of come up with some justifications for those killings. But Amasa, uh, this one seems to be purely out of jealousy. Uh, the, the desire to eliminate a rival who took his position, uh, this is just a cold-blooded deceptive murder of his cousin for his own gain. So here's the question. Why doesn't David do anything about this dysfunction in his kingdom? Why doesn't David punish Joab for killing Amasa? Why doesn't he bring justice here? It's not for lack of desire. As a matter of fact, he plainly tells his son Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 2, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and here it is, Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let Joab's gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Solomon ends up carrying that out. But why doesn't David punish Joab? Like right here, right now. Well, this is where we need to remember that there's actually a fourth person 
who Joab kills in this book, albeit indirectly, 2 Samuel 11. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. We keep coming back to David's sin in 2 Samuel chapter 11 because everything that happens from chapter 12 to chapter 20, all of it is affected by the consequences, the repercussions, the fallout of that sin. And so it's not that David doesn't want to deal with Joab as much as it is that he can't deal with Joab. Because he's already got his hands full dealing with the massive fallout from his sin. Like his kingdom is barely holding together. He was chased into exile by his own son. He's now gone through two massive revolts. Like he's got to rebuild this very divided nation. And he can hardly afford at this point to go against the most powerful man in his kingdom. David's kingdom is dysfunctional. And it's not too hard to trace a line from that dysfunction back to David's sin that set everything into motion. Point number two, Joab and the dysfunction of the kingdom. And that brings us to point number three, David and the decline of the kingdom. We've already spoken a bit about the decline of the kingdom in both the division of the kingdom that Sheba sowed and in the dysfunction of the kingdom characterized by Joab's rogue actions. But two other clues in this chapter relating now specifically to David, well, they also point us to the decline of his kingdom. First, there's that verse at the beginning of the chapter. Look at verse 3. David had to uh, take his ten concubines and uh, put them into a separate house. Uh, They could not just continue to live as his wives after what happened. And so these women who were once essentially part of his family are now uh, living as if in widowhood. And so the decline of the kingdom has reached even the family of the king. But the second clue... Look at how the chapter ends. It's a list of his officers. Seemingly insignificant, right? Like these are the kinds of verses that we tend to quickly skim through. But if you pause to read it, say, wait a minute. We've seen a list like this before. Yeah, it was all the way back at the end of chapter 8. Verses 16 through 18, listing off many of the same offices and even mostly the same officers as our list here. There's a few minor differences if you kind of compare them side by side. For example, there's a new position over forced labor. Uh, There's some new priests. But the lists are pretty similar. But you know what the big difference is? It's what introduces the list in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And then comes the list. Righteousness, justice, equity... We talked back in chapter 8 how David's reign of righteousness and justice, as imperfect and as flawed as it was, it did to at least some degree reflect God himself. God's throne is described in that exact way in the scriptures. That's what introduces the list in chapter 8. But you're not going to find such an introduction here in chapter 20 for all of the reasons that we've been talking about. 
So by giving us two very similar lists, well, it's the differences that our eyes are drawn to. The list of David's kingdom in chapter 8, before his sin, and the list of David's kingdom in chapter 20, after his sin. As similar as they are, they are worlds apart. What was once the kingdom of righteousness and justice is now a shadow of its former self. And there's no going back. Humpty Dumpty's had a great fall, and nothing is going to put Humpty together again. The king is back on his throne. The kingdom has survived multiple rebellions. Like it's still holding on, but the glory days are gone. The once magnificent, splendid kingdom of righteousness and justice has had a great fall. And there is no way to put it back together again. And so now in its place stands a kingdom ravaged by fratricide, rebellion, murder, division, dysfunction. Point number three, David and the decline of his kingdom. The second Samuel chapter 20 is a startling picture of David's divided, dysfunctional, declining kingdom. And it's all the more shocking when you realize that 2 Samuel chapter 20 is the end of the narrative of David's life. The rest of the book, chapters 21 through 24, it's kind of like an epilogue. Uh, There's some stories from earlier in his life. Uh, There's some psalms that he wrote. There's a list of his mighty men and so on. But in terms of the continuous narrative of his life, this is the end. Yeah, it's on this note that we end. And so we're just left with this uncomfortable feeling. This is no way to end a movie. Can't we go back to the glory days? Can't the great King David go out on top? Or at least a little higher than this? And that's when we remember that while this may be the end of the story of David's kingdom, certainly not the end of the story of God's kingdom. The story of God's kingdom continues through David's son Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam, under whom the kingdom is divided. And it continues, and it it hangs on through two exiles and a return. And it continues all the way to a manger in Bethlehem, where the Son of God takes on human flesh, and people begin to ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You see, that king... Even though he would be called the son of David, that king was nothing like David. Whereas David's life, especially towards the end, it comes to be entirely defined by his great sins. Well, the son of David would never once sin. No, he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And whereas David's kingdom would be torn down by the effects of his sin, Jesus, in contrast, would build up his kingdom by taking upon himself the sins of his people. A Jesus who never once sinned would go to the cross. There he would bear the wrath of God for all the sins of all of his people that they might be forgiven, that they might be delivered from the domain of darkness into, transferred into, the kingdom of his beloved son. 
Dear friend, if you've never placed your trust in Christ, I implore you to cry out to him even today. That even this morning, you might be brought into this kingdom. Because where David's kingdom would necessarily come to an end. For everything spoiled by sin must come to an end because the wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus' perfectly righteous kingdom and all who belong to it will endure forever because he was raised again to defeat death, to rule and to reign forever. And so when we read and study the life of David and we see the story come to an end here in chapter 20 and we leave with his divided dysfunctional, declining kingdom, yes, we should be sobered by the dangers of sin. Yes, we should be reminded of the Lord's discipline. Yes, this is undeniably a sad ending to the story. But we should also be reminded that David's divided, dysfunctional, declining kingdom is not the end. It was never intended to be. No, it's meant to be a shadow that points us forward to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that will never be divided, that will never prove dysfunctional, that will never be in decline. The kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Father, we read of the kingdom of David. We are sobered by the tragic consequences of sin. And yet we are reminded of our hope that David's kingdom is not the ultimate one, but that Christ has come to die for his people, that he might usher us who believe into his kingdom that he will rule and reign forever. Father, increase our faith, increase our love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.